0: Hey friends, my name is Ellie Shuford. I'm a senior at UGA and I'm going to be reading tonight's passage, Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, and I will know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, you are witnesses this day, and I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord.
1: How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His own His treasure, how great the pain of seeing was. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen. and reserve
2: Thanks for joining us, everyone. We're glad that you're back for our last week together of RUF Large Group, Spring 2020, as we conclude our 15-week-long series on Shattered Saviors, the Book of Judges and the Book of Ruth, through this spring semester. There is a psalm that you might be familiar with because it became a rallying cry in the civil rights movement in our country back in the 50s and 60s. Psalm 30, verse 5, and it goes like this Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Though weeping endures throughout the night, joy comes in the morning. And that's actually what Ruth chapter 4 is all about. It's what Ellie just read. What she just read is a picture of morning finally breaking the first rays of sunshine finally bursting through surging through a limitless darkness that had captured Naomi and Ruth it was a darkness that was always over them no matter where they went and it wasn't just the darkness of death or the darkness of economic poverty or lack of social status but it was but it was it was the darkness and it was the nighttime of Of never really knowing if your life was over or not. Never really knowing if your best days were all behind you. Never really knowing if you had a future anymore or not. And this, this, what we're about to talk about in more detail, this is when morning comes back. A permanent morning that replaces what was almost a seemingly permanent night. 3,650 night times consecutive For Ruth and Naomi, a decade of darkness. And here is when the lights come back on by God's grace. Two things we're going to talk about in the next few minutes together, and then we're done. Ruth's approach to Boaz and ours to Jesus. We're going to look at the parallels between Ruth's approach to Boaz and our approach to Jesus. And secondly, Boaz's response to Ruth and Jesus's response to us. Or you could put it this way, Ruth's approach to her Redeemer and our approach to ours. And second, our Redeemer's response to us and our response to Him. Let me pray for us and we will get busy. Jesus, in these minutes together, we pray that you would show us how we might approach you. But I think even more than that, We want you to show how you approach us and how you respond to us. So we pray that you would do that. Fan the flame of faith in our hearts that our love for you might deepen and deepen and our security and rest in you might increase. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, we said the first thing that we want to pay attention to was... What did Ruth's approach to her Redeemer, Boaz, look like? And what do we see in that about our approach, or how we can approach our Redeemer, Jesus? A little bit of this will be review. It'll be kind of bridging the gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. It'll be kind of picking us up a little bit where we left off last week. But how did Ruth approach Boaz? Well, there's a few ways that I think are particularly relevant to you and me as we think about how do I come to Jesus? How do I approach him? And this is a question that's a live question. It's valid. And it's on the radar of you if you do not know Jesus and you don't know what to make of Jesus. This is a really relevant question to you, right? How should I approach him? How should I come to him as I seek to kind of understand him better and know what he's about? But even if you know him or even more so, if you know Jesus already, that's still a live question, What's the dynamic of our relationship? How can I approach him hour to hour in my life, day to day in my life? Well, the first thing I, I see really evidently in the passage is Ruth approaches Boaz with a keen sense, an awareness of her poverty and how her poverty drives her to Boaz. She didn't see, hear this, she did not see her poverty as a disqualification For Boaz, she did not see her poverty or what she lacked as a reason to stay away. Oftentimes we see even our sin, our guilt, our shame, our weakness, the ways we have fallen short. The current patterns and addictions we're caught up in, we see that as disqualifications to go to Jesus. Ruth saw it as the reason she had to go to Boaz. It's what qualified her for needing a Redeemer. And so her poverty, and she's aware of this, her poverty drives her to Boaz. And she essentially says to him, Boaz, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing in me or about me that offsets the burdens that I bring or brings the scale back to a neutral point. I've got nothing but liabilities. You redeeming me, you loving me, I know it will weigh down upon your shoulders. And Look, I want to say here, I don't want to overshadow Ruth's amazing qualities, her beautiful qualities. We talked about that a lot last week. Uh, The Bible consistently holds Ruth up as an exemplar, as a a model uh, of impeccable character and selfless love. Everybody through the book of Ruth draws attention to how well she loved Naomi, Boaz, the other women in the fields so her character speaks for itself and gets a lot of attention in the passage but you got to you got to catch this ruth isn't approaching boaz as an equal this is not another wealthy woman in the town who catches boaz's eye and he catches her eye and they meet together and they say and she says to him hey what do you think about dating or what do you think about going out or you want to be friends This is someone who is as far down the social tree as you can get from Boaz coming to him, and she's not asking to be friends. She's not asking to date him. She's saying, will you redeem me? In a sense, as we've talked about it in weeks past, will you bring resurrection into all of the places of death in my life, my finances, my heritage, my past, my present, and my future? Ruth was keenly aware of how her need drove her to Boaz and she was very much aware of how she actually brought nothing but liabilities and debts to Boaz. And so that kind of shapes how she approaches him so that she, and this is the second thing I noticed, she approaches Boaz with a question in her mind and nothing in her hands. And this is how we approach Jesus with a question in our minds but nothing in our hands. Just as Ruth's poverty drives her to her Redeemer. Our poverty should drive us to Christ, and it should drive us to him with a question in our minds and nothing in our hands. The question that Ruth has in her mind and eventually leaves her lips and reaches Boaz's ears is this, Will you redeem me? That's all she has. That's really all she brings. Nothing else. This is not her bartering. It's not her negotiating. She's not transacting or trading anything. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Her speaking role in this encounter is remarkably short. Will you redeem me? Will you spread the corner of your garment over me? You are a redeemer, is what she says. All she's come with is an acknowledgement of that need and that poverty That we just talked about. Isaiah 55 is a beautiful place where the entire chapter of Isaiah 55 gives voice to this very thing I'm talking about our posture as we approach our Redeemer. The prophet says there, uh, God says through Isaiah the prophet, To you, come everyone who thirsts. Are you thirsty? Do you lack? Then let your thirst be a qualification for coming to me. He says, come to the waters. You're thirsty? Come to the waters. Come to a place of abundance. And he says, he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy milk, come buy wine without price. So we come to God. We come to our Redeemer as Ruth came to her Redeemer with a question in our minds and nothing in our hands. Isaiah says, come without money. And buy milk and wine and eat. He's saying the bill has already been paid, so don't come with some negotiation to Jesus or some trade off, but come empty handed. Well, the third thing that I see of how she approaches her Redeemer and how we approach ours is with a strong and growing suspicion that, in Ruth's case, Boaz might just be as good as he seems to be. Naomi was suspicious that Boaz was good. She'd been watching him for a while. He was a distant relative of hers, and I don't know how well she knew him prior to all of the death and widowhood and journey back to Bethlehem, but somehow she knew him, and then they had had several months of just watching him live his life. And they got the growing suspicion that this man is different. He, like Ruth, my daughter-in-law, he loves so well. He goes out of his way to take care of Naomi's needs. If he was really just interested in a cute girl, if he was really just after Ruth, why is he going out of his way to make sure that her old, beat-up mother-in-law has enough food to eat too? He's always asking, how's Naomi? How's Naomi? So they're, they have a growing suspicion that this man is different. He sees us. He notices us. He cares for us. He... He thinks about us in ways that other people don't think about us. So maybe, just maybe, he might respond well to this question that's on our mind. Will will you redeem us? Will you bring resurrection into all the places of death in our lives? And guess what? As often happens between close friends, Naomi's faith in Boaz rubbed off and became Ruth's faith in Boaz. Naomi's suspicion that Boaz not only is good, but would help, eventually becomes Ruth's confidence, Ruth's suspicions that maybe Boaz is really good and maybe he will help. And so Ruth eventually grows in enough confidence to kind of give herself to this crazy plan of Naomi's to go in the middle of the night and to present this man with her request at great risk and great cost, as we talked about last week. And there's just so many stories of this throughout the Gospels of people who had nothing to give to Jesus and at great risk had grown suspicious by watching him interact, watching him live his life over the months, watching how he responded to others who had just were draped in shame, couldn't cut the ball and chain of their past or their reputation couldn't fix their patterns. They got to see him over and over again respond to those people in compassion, generosity, welcome, and hospitality, that their suspicions grew that maybe just maybe he would do that for me too. It's like Luke 7. How did that woman ever end up busting in on Jesus's dinner party with the Pharisees? That's the last place on earth a woman like her would ever want to be. She could have been stoned on the spot. But her suspicions that Jesus was as good as he seemed to appear, had grown to the point that she took the risk and went to him and asked essentially to him too, will you be my redeemer? Well, Ruth's suspicion of Boaz's goodness was very well founded because his response to her blew her wildest expectations, her dreams out of the water He so far exceeded them. Friends, have your suspicions of Jesus' goodness grown to the point that you're beginning to take your needs, today's needs, to him? Confident that maybe, just maybe, he would respond well to someone like you. Well, That's kind of the risk, right? Because the the other thing, the fourth thing that I see uh, about Ruth's approach to her Redeemer and our approach to our Redeemer is that she doesn't just come with a question on her mind and nothing in her hands, nor does she just come with a sneaking suspicion, but she comes with a weighty silence that awaits her Redeemer's response. Has your fate seemed like your future, your life, ever rested so squarely in someone else's hands that after you made your request or asked the favor that you needed of them, all you could do is sit silently and await their response? Maybe there's been some job interviews that you've experienced that. My life, they have my life in their hands, or maybe it was a, a guy or a girl that you were interested in. And you feel like you're just waiting on for them to render a verdict about you, and there's nothing you can do to sway them or persuade them, but you've made your ask, and now you sit and you wait, and they have all the cards, all the power. Maybe it was a legal situation you got into, and it was a judge that you'd asked for mercy or a ticket you were trying to get out of. But this is a moment for Ruth and Naomi where their fate, their future, rests entirely in Boaz's hands, And after she has asked him and said, would you spread the corner of your garment over me? Would you redeem me? Would you marry me? All that's left for her to do is sit and listen on his response. That's where she is after she makes a request. She waits in silence for what might have been seconds. It might have been minutes. But her life and her future is in his hands. Now here's, here's the point I think we can, we can glean from this. That, number one, that's a little bit unsettling, right? We are people who love control and love micromanaging. We even like to micromanage God, and he is the one person that we don't have any hope of micromanaging. He is independent from us. And so we ask these things of him. Lord, would you redeem me? Would you forgive me? Would you, I'm a month into quarantine, I don't like how it's going, I don't like what I've been doing with you, would you, would you let us have a restart? Would you begin anew in me? Would you bring morning to break open this nighttime that I've been stuck in? We, we ask that question, but it's an unsettling place to be as you sit in silence awaiting his response. A lot of us feel so uncomfortable waiting in silence and listening that we can just fill the silence with a lot of talking. You know, Scripture says be quick to listen and slow to speak, but a lot of times in our prayer lives, I find myself in my prayer life being very quick to speak and very slow to listen to God. I ask much of Him, but it never occurs to me to sit in silence and wait because maybe, just maybe, as I'm asking something of Him, He says something in response to me. He answers. He responds. And I I think this is true about a lot of us. Some of us are much more fluent in making our requests known to God than we are waiting and listening for God's response to our requests. Some of us are far more fluent in rehearsing our sins or confessing our sins to Jesus than you are listening to his words of forgiveness after Your confessions. All that we really bring to Him is a kind of a daily dumping of guilt or shame or regret or angst or agony. But as soon as we have unburdened ourselves and put those things at His feet, we pack right up and walk out the door. And we miss hearing His word of peace spoken over us Son or daughter, I forgive you. You're released from responsibility. Because I bore responsibility for what you just named. If this is you, friend, have you actually stopped talking long enough to let your life and your future fully rest in Jesus' hands so that you can hear his response? And oh, does he speak it! Oh, dear sinner, as surely as I live, I myself will redeem you. And I will take you to be my own. Or if you're a Christian, have you listened long enough to hear him say again and again and again, day after day, I have redeemed you. I have taken you to be my own. Well, that, what we just talked about, really just gives us a quick review of chapter 3 and the beginnings of chapter 4. But chapter 3 left us hanging last week, right? The, the drama kind of hangs in the balance as Ruth has just put it all on the line and put herself out there. She has asked Boaz to redeem her and Boaz's response was essentially one way or another, I will redeem you, but, but, Ruth, there's another man. And He, in a sense, has first rights to step in and take you into his household and take care of you, and I need to go check with him. The reason Boaz needs to go and check with him isn't just for the legality of it all, but it's because it would have wreaked havoc had Boaz been seen to, as it were, cut in line or to deprive this other man of what would have been his rights as kinsman redeemer his responsibility. And so this was a necessary, a, an absolutely critical piece of the story that Boaz had to go and find this man and work it out. And Boaz wastes no time. He is a good friend to Ruth. He doesn't say, uh, you know, I need to look at this. I'll get back to you. And he doesn't say, you know, um, business is really busy right now. It's the barley harvest, busiest time of the year for me. Um, when things settle down, let me look into this. He leaves that morning, and he goes to the city gates. The city gates of ancient Israel or the ancient Near East were kind of the, the you know, if you had a library and a university and a courtroom and um, Congress all stacked on top of each other in a marketplace, it's where everything really went down. It was a big entryway, a big gate with all these little rooms on the side. And so Boaz goes to kind of the city center to look for this man. And then once again, you see God's kind of invisible hand pulling together all of the pieces to bring morning into the nighttime that Ruth and Naomi were stuck in to bless them. Because the, the text says literally, Boaz goes to the city gates looking for this man. And it says, Behold which is the Bible's way of saying, get a load of this, or can you believe it? The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. He's here. He passed by. Oh my gosh, I was looking for this guy and there he is. And so Boaz grabs him and he says, hey, I got to talk to you about something. And they grab a bunch of the elders who are also up there by the city gates and they find a side room and they have a conversation and they flesh this out. And You see, uh, you can read as good as I what happens in that meeting. Boaz presents this relative of Naomi's with his responsibilities and privileges as a kinsman redeemer. And he says, there's this parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech. Will you redeem it so that it stays in his family, in his lineage, and perpetuates his name? Will you do that? And the man says, I will. And then Boaz says, well... One condition of you, you know, taking possession of this land is that she, that Ruth the Moabite uh, comes with the land. She's part of the package. And the man says, um, what? Let me, wait, let me think about that. And he says, um, you know, I got to talk at, through with some friends or whoever he talked it through with. And he said, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. I can't redeem it. Lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, the burden that it would be to take Ruth under my house, under my wing to provide for her and care for her would impair my situation. We don't know if he's talking about financially. I can't bear that financial burden. We don't know if he's talking about relationally that would hurt him. We don't know. He doesn't say. All we know is that once this man finally got to see Ruth as she was, all of her liabilities, all of her costs, all of her burdens, he backed off. He didn't want it anymore. And what became earlier a yes, I will redeem it, the land, once he found out that it came with a her, he said, I will not redeem her. I cannot redeem it. Imagine you're Ruth. Everybody would have known this, by the way. There were 10 elders there. There were all these other people listening to this conversation. Word absolutely got out about this. That yet again, Ruth, comes up empty, comes up empty-handed, comes up short. Hope was within sight. Resurrection was so near, and now it has fallen through again. And yet, and yet, the story doesn't end there because Boaz speaks up when no one else will speak up for Ruth. And he doesn't have to speak up. He was under no duty, no obligation, to fend for her. He was under no duty, no obligation, no expectation to put his neck on the line for her. But he does. He speaks up. He fills a silence. As Ruth, in essence, she's not the one asking this man, will you redeem me? But Boaz, Ruth through Boaz is presenting a request to this other potential redeemer saying, will you redeem me? And he says, once he, he says yes at first, but then he sees the price tag, On Ruth, how much she's going to cost him, how much burdens she's going to bring and chaos she's going to bring into his life. And then he says, no. And in that silence, that condemning, crippling, crushing silence of rejection, Boaz's voice rises up and he says, I will redeem her. I will buy her to be my wife. And Boaz Boaz knows down to the penny how much it will cost him. Boaz knows in exhaustive detail the liabilities that he puts upon his shoulders by making Ruth his wife. What does this mean for our approach to our Redeemer or our Redeemer Jesus, his approach to us or his response to us? that first point, we talked about our approach to him, but what about his response to us? What do we see here? What do we see a faint glimmer of in Boaz's life that leads to a blazing, shining reality in Christ's life and his response to you? Here it is. Friend, if you know Jesus, there is nothing that Jesus knows about you that diminishes his love for you. There is no burden of yours that he resists shouldering for you. There's no debt of yours that he bristles at paying. I think this is really hard for a lot of us to believe because we're so prepared and on guard for just the opposite. Even with each other, we try to proactively diminish or hide our liabilities so that others will still love us, or we might even settle for others just putting up with us or wanting us. And so we use a lot of different things like people-pleasing or our own humor, our own personality. Um, You might be a service-oriented person, and maybe one of the reasons you're so servant-hearted is to get people to like you We manage our image, we privatize our real inner thoughts and conditions and opinions for fear of offending or pushing away someone or turning them against us. We brand ourselves, we present a highly polished version of ourselves. And we do all of this in the effort of trying to get people to put up with us or tolerate us, want us or like us. But a lot of people on this planet don't have that luxury. For whatever reason, they can't hide the true versions of themselves. And Ruth and Naomi are two of those women. They don't have the luxury of pretending or spinning or people-pleasing or privatizing their real condition. Everybody sees their real condition. Their burdens can't be hidden. The whole town knows. They're poor. And their clothes shout it out. Their widows and their reputation shouts it out. Ruth is an immigrant, and her accent, her skin's complexion, her culture shouts out how different and how powerless she is. Everything about these two women shouts, I'm needy. And they know that everybody knows this. And so again, one of their ever-present fears of rejection is confirmed again when this other redeemer, this guy, says, I'm not going to redeem you. It just confirms it until Boaz speaks up, as we said. And we see that there is nothing in Ruth, nothing in Naomi that Boaz knows about them that diminishes his love for them. Nothing. We know he knows their situation. We know he knows what it will cost him. But it does not affect his love for them. Friends, Jesus knows from the beginning, inside and out, all the liabilities, the failures, the defects, the dysfunction of sinners, and yet he still wants them. Paul is repeatedly making this argument. He comes at it three different times in just a few sentences to press home the reality of what I just said. That knowing what he knows about you, even if you don't know the Lord, knowing what he knows about you will not hinder him pursuing you and wanting you. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, and then he says, while we were ungodly, and then he says, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. The people who the gospel writers show flocking To Jesus are people like Nicodemus the tax collector, like the sinful woman of Luke 7, like the woman at the well, like Mary Magdalene. They were specifically people who knew, who had grown suspicious, who had grown to believe that Jesus could see them as they were and still receive them, still speak up for them, still love them, Still pursue them. Friends, when, you, when this clicks in your mind and in your heart, music will start coming out of your heart and out of your mind. Joy will return when you believe that there is nothing that Jesus knows about you that diminishes His love for you. Oh, how that brings freedom and joy and jubilance back into somebody's life when they see these things. Let me put it to you squarely. Did Jesus experience sticker shock at the cost of redeeming you? Of course he did. It's depicted in vivid detail from John 14 to John 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane. We just heard depicted again this past Good Friday. Of course he got sticker shock at the burdens that he would bear on your behalf, at the liabilities and the debts that he would take upon himself the consequences that he would drape himself in. Of course he got sticker shock at the cost of buying you for himself. But did he walk away like that first redeemer? Of course he didn't. And did he ever experience buyer's remorse after redeeming you? Now that you're his, does he experience buyer's remorse? Never. Never. Why not? Because he loves you. Why not with Boaz to Ruth? Because he loved her. But as we conclude, not just this message and this chapter, but this book and really this series of Judges and Ruth, we need to conclude reminding ourselves that Jesus' love for his people is not just his feeling for his people, a feeling of love for his people, because redeeming love, and we see this so clearly in Boaz, redeeming love doesn't just feel, but it executes a plan. It secures access to its beloved. So look, when we say that God loves you, God loves his people, yes, of course we we believe, Zephaniah 3.17, that God delights in you and rejoices in you. Rejoices over you. And of course, we also mean that he feels affection for you. He feels affection for you, Hosea 11.8. We believe Revelation 21.3, that he prefers your company. He prefers to be in your presence and you to be in his presence. We believe Psalm 139, that he thinks of you always. But listen, we need something more, and Ruth needed something more than just Boaz's feelings of love for her, she needed an executed plan, she needed a contract, she needed witnesses, she needed a covenant established. Redeeming love is an executing love, it's an acting love. I don't know how much you got to participate in your church's Easter worship or celebration of Good Friday or Monday, Thursday or Easter Day, But we have just come out of a week of rehearsing again and remembering the climax of Jesus executing or accomplishing the plan of redemption. He was fulfilling the plan that secured your marriage to him. When he said, as surely as the Lord lives, I myself will redeem you, those couldn't just remain words. They had to be executed. They had to be implemented. They had to be fulfilled. And his payment of this price of redemption wasn't just a symbol of sentimental love for you. But as he paid the price of your redemption on the cross, what he was doing is not just showing you how much he loved you. He was crushing your enemies. He was fighting your battles for you. He was silencing your foes and your accusers. He was cleansing your soul. He was securing your future with him. And every inch he moved forward for you, he moved backward a thousand miles. As he fell down, your Redeemer lifted you up. We don't see this nearly as clearly in Boaz because Boaz, in establishing and executing his love for Ruth, is simply you know, doing a marriage ceremony, as it were, making public vows to her, but he secures his love. He he chisels it in stone for all the world to see that he will love, not just does love, but will love Ruth. And Jesus does that infinitely better for us on the cross. He accomplishes his love for us. He doesn't just demonstrate it, but he accomplishes it for us. Sufyan Stevens gives us a fitting way to end this because he really captures this idea beautifully that redeeming love doesn't just feel, but it does the work. It goes on the journey. It fights the battle. It executes the plan or the mission to be with its beloved. It's his old song titled, To Be Alone With You. He says, I'd swim across Lake Michigan. I'd sell my shoes. I'd give my body to be back again, in the rest of the room, to be alone with you, to be alone with you. You gave your body to the lonely, they took your clothes. You gave up a wife and a family, you gave your goals, to be alone with me. To be alone with me, you went up on the tree. To be alone with me, you went up on the tree. I've never known a man who loved me. Redeeming love works. Redeeming love fights. It executes a battle plan. It accomplishes the redemption. It secures the salvation. That's, friends, what Jesus has done for us in a perfect and beautiful way on the cross. But I know there's a couple of you out there who are like my mind so often used to be. Who say, this sounds good, Ben, and I know all of this stuff, and I can believe it for every other human being on planet Earth except for me. Because my days, my life still seems like God is blessing everybody but me. He's merciful to everybody but me. He'll fight for anybody but me, redeem anybody but me. Everybody else, morning is coming in their life. Light is returning. But for me, I'm still stuck in darkness, stuck in light or in, in, in the night. And I got to tell you, I, I the first time I read this passage, it was kind of quickly and I missed this. But I thought that verse 14 and 15 were talking about Ruth, but they're not. Look at who they are addressed to. Verse 14, then the women said, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. He hasn't abandoned you without a redeemer and may his name be famous in Israel. He will be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. You hear those words and you say, isn't God great because of what he did for Ruth? He didn't leave you alone. He remembered you. He blessed you. He gave to you. But friends, that is addressed from the women to Naomi, not to Ruth. They look at this whole situation and they say, Naomi, God has never forgotten you. Yes, Ruth goes home with a husband, and Ruth has children, and Ruth has a future, but you have a future too, Naomi. God has blessed you with Ruth, and now with Ruth's offspring, Obed, and his offspring, David, and his offspring, Jesus. So friends, whether you see yourself as the one who clearly is receiving God's favor and blessing right now, or you see yourself as the one who... Is still in the nighttime while everybody else is celebrating the morning. I want you to go back and I want you to wrestle with this passage. And I want, to let you, I want you to let it wrestle with you. That you might be able to imagine a new way to approach your Redeemer. And that you might be able to see your Redeemer approach you in a new and beautiful and strong and powerful way. A way of love. And Lord Jesus, that is my prayer. Not just that we would wrestle with this passage, but it would wrestle with us, that it would bless us, that it would bring the morning to shine your light upon us. Gospel light, we pray in your name. Amen.
0: Hey friends, it's Casey. I'm one of the interns. And before you go, I just wanted to remind you of the REF leadership meeting we're hosting over Zoom tomorrow, Thursday at 4 p.m. This is for anyone who is going to be a student at UGA in the fall and is interested in why we do what we do at RUF or curious about what it looks like to serve RUF and UGA on a ministry team or a servant team. Joining the meeting doesn't commit you to anything. It's just saying that you're interested in hearing more. So join us tomorrow, Thursday at 4 p.m. And the Zoom link will be posted in the groupy